this is like why one of my most recent critiques is that I think the problem with, you know, toxic maximalism is not that it's not well-reasoned. It's extremely well-reasoned. It was a great invention, but it was invented for a specific thing. It was invented to stop unwanted protocol changes uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, toxic maximalism was not an adoption strategy. It was never proposed as a way to get more people to use Bitcoin. And it is not that thing. And any any suggestion that it can become that thing uh, is, to me, totally logical. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Juan Galt's show. Today, we have a very special show. Um, this is maybe one of the best conversations we've had so far. It was a conversation with Mike Moss and Peter Rizzo. And then Zvetsky showed up. And uh, it was a perfect combination because everybody in the call had a, a key role or a leadership position in the respective topic. And the topic was Bitcoin maximalism versus Silicon Valley. Uh, Peter Rousseau expressed concerns at the time. This was shot about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, He expressed concerns about Bitcoin's future. He, He said that he felt doubts about our vision going forward. He, um, expressed doubts about Bitcoin's lack of a clear narrative for the next bull market and and his concern about the kind of um, near arrogant level ethos that is sometimes seen, you know, in Bitcoin, you know, the, the whole meme like Bitcoin already won, we just got to wait, right? Like there's a false sense of security there that he's concerned about. And I agree with him. I don't think I don't think it's good to rest on our laurels. And I don't think it's a given that Bitcoin has won. It just gives us a fucking, a great chance to actually bring financial liberty and prosperity to the world and uh, censorship resistance and sovereignty. To the individual, something that I think the world desperately needs, and I think you'll agree with that, right? So this show was fantastic. We start off with Mike Moss uh, telling us a little bit about how he became a venture capitalist, and then Peter Russo joins the show, and uh, we go deep into Bitcoin culture and try to kind of weed out this this uh, question of Bitcoin maximalism versus the world, and where is the utility and the purpose of Bitcoin maximalism, and is there a path to diplomacy with people who are not Bitcoin maximalists that can bring great value to Bitcoin infrastructure, or do we have to convince everybody to become a Bitcoin maximalist? Those are the questions on the show, and um, I hope you enjoy. I think uh, I think it's a really good conversation. Before we get into the show, however, if you're a fellow Canadian, you might be, you know, interested in knowing that uh, there is a company in Canada called Beaver Bitcoin that lets you buy Bitcoin and withdraw it to your DCA automatically. And it's probably the easiest way to buy Bitcoin in Canada. Beaver Bitcoin is Canada's most user-friendly Bitcoin on-ramp. 
You can buy Bitcoin instantly and set up a recurring buy directly from your bank account. Viva Bitcoin is non-custodial, delivers your Bitcoin directly to your wallet that only you control. You know, send it to your cold wallet. And it is built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners and it's easy enough to recommend to your family and friends. And that's the key thing, right? Like, there's always like a more paranoid and hardcore way of buying Bitcoin. But our family, our friends, as long as they have some in their cold storage, they're probably going to be okay. And unless you want to become their go-to customer service agent, then I think we do need tools and services that are super easy to use for them to just plug and play and forget about it. And that's something that Beaver Bitcoin can do for Canadians. So if you're a a fellow Canadian, um, yeah, check out beaverbitcoin.com. Also, um, in this process of evangelizing and teaching people about Bitcoin, we need a way to give them that orange pill. And there's so much content out there. There's so many different ways to learn that it's sometimes hard to know what to send people. I've written a lot of articles. You can send them my articles if you wish. But wiser is a project that's actually really mastered this rabbit hole question. It is a mobile phone app that has gamified the Bitcoin learning curve, and it's super interesting. Wiser is your go-to app for bite-sized Bitcoin and financial education. You can learn and earn Bitcoin while competing with your friends and completing challenges, all while boosting your financial knowledge. Beginners and experts alike can dive into a structured and gamified learning journey. Install Wiser today on iOS and Android at wiser.io. That's Y-Z-E-R.io. Y-Z-E-R.io. Very cool company. Very interesting. I played the app and it's super fun. They give you sats for proving your knowledge of Bitcoin. It's uh, kid-friendly. So a 16-year-old friend of mine, friend of the family who is really curious about Bitcoin, I sent him the app and he's been crushing it. He's gonna be he's gonna be probably a Bitcoin core developer in a few years at the rate that he's going, and this app is helping him a lot. So, um, yeah, Wiser.io, definitely check it out. It's a great uh, way to orange pill your normie friends. All right, let's get into it. Without further ado, Mike Moss, Peter Rizzo, and Zvetsky. Let's go. Mike Moss, welcome to the show. Good to have you, man. What's up, Juan? It's been a while since we <laughs> hung. A million to one. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, yeah. It's been a while. Last uh, last I saw you, we were in El Salvador, hanging out by the beach uh, in a beautiful little hotel on uh, on the on the playa where the the magic happened. Were you there when we got that uh, that Coca Cola mixer? After the bar closed late at night? Yeah, I was there, actually. I I barely recall uh, you pulling off a magic trick and coming back with some uh, some drinks. <laughs> they, they, like, shut the bar at the hotel in uh, San Salvador. And we, like, somebody had a bottle of rum and there was no mixers, but the bar was staffed inside. And, uh-huh. like, five people tried and they just would not sell um a couple of cans of coca-cola and i i miraculously pulled that off there's a few moments where the only option was uh mike mike moss's uh powers of persuasion uh that got us through the day i remember through that <laughs> through that um, whole experience yes um, i channeled i channeled my tour managing uh my tour managing right. cast for that yeah yeah and i and i'm really curious about your background because i never 
you know, I met you as the 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 host or like the the COO of uh, Unconfiscatable, essentially, like the guy behind the scenes making sure things happen. And when when I looked around, you were now doing VC work in the lighting in the lighting infrastructure industry, and as a bit of a plot twist, I was not expecting that. So I really I'm really curious about that how that happened. But all right, cool. Listen. Juan, before we get into something else, since uh, you uh, you know what you're talking about, what's going on with the price, bro? When's this shit going to go up? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, oh, I you mean, don't know? Well, nobody knows fundamentally, but uh, yeah, we're, we're in that period of consolidation after the crash and before the halving where, you know, it's just like a jigsaw, like it's just we're just uh, consolidating and it's a really it's awkward because the the miners are taking profits and and surviving while the stackers are buying but it's it, neither one nobody has sort of dominance right like the bulls and the bears are just wrestling in the mud and it's really volatile and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the markets like people don't exactly know what's going to happen in the markets in general like there's still people saying that we're going to have a a recession Q4 and Q1 of 24. Uh, and there's people that are saying that, you know, either either that's not going to happen or it doesn't really matter for the Bitcoin price and the S&P. So it's just, we're, we're in a weird place. Um, I think, um, but it's it's pretty clear to me we're out of the, the worst, like the worst is behind us. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I think we, we need to, we need to build that. Like the, the good, here's the good news. The, the longer we consolidate, the harder the push upwards. So if we had broken up to 35,000 or 40,000, we could be on, heading our way down to 25,000 by now. But because we haven't, the, the pressure is building, right? So the, the bears are selling and eventually the bears are, they run out of ammo and then the price just shoots up. Um, and right now the biggest bear is the U S government, the, the U S government selling thousands of Bitcoins that they, that they basically confiscated from Silk Road and, uh, they're still selling and, and, you know, so that's, that's the, the U S government is the bear whale of this era as the bear whale of $300 who sold 30,000 Bitcoin at $300. So this is the, this is the same thing. They're selling thousands of Bitcoin at 30,000 and, uh, yeah, we just gotta we gotta we gotta buy all of uh, the U.S. government's Bitcoin. I mean, what else could you ask for? I thought yeah. that they sold all that, but I guess no. I guess not. Apparently, they're still selling it. Yeah, I know. I, I you know a lot of like the the recent dip. There was a big red candle recently. That was the U.S. government again, as far as I'm aware. And uh, and 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 a few back in April when we were about to cross. Uh, to thirty thousand again. That was the U.S. government crashing the price again. So that's that's where we're at. Oh man! All right. Well, <laughs> I guess we'll just be patient then. Indeed, indeed. Gotta get our second job. <laughs> so or a third one. Or a third one. So, Mike. So, okay, I met you as the the CEO, the the the, the logistics sort of mastermind behind Unconfiscatable Tone Bases. Bitcoin conference, which is, by the way, a fantastic conference. You guys got to check it out this December. It's going to be in Las Vegas. Great, great conference. Uh, very high signal. That's, that's what I met you. And 
And then all of a sudden, I, I looked around, and now you're doing uh, a VC. You're the, the spearhead of a VC firm, a VC syndicate that invests in line infrastructure. How did that happen? How did, how, you know, where did that come from? I'm very confused, but uh, uh, mysterious Mike Moss. <laughs> well, I don't know about all of a sudden, because I think uh, Lightning Ventures is just having just passed its two-year anniversary, um, which is crazy that it's been two years. Um, but before that, I was just um, in a, a addicted to angel investing um, in all sorts of technology companies, basically maybe over 1,500 companies and learning as much as I could. Um, about investing. And that's all kinds of companies, you know, those are crazy uh, dental teeth whitening companies and robotic lawnmowers and, you know, everything that you can imagine. I mean, I'm a Bitcoiner since, you know, the 2013 era. And some of those companies were Bitcoin companies, but largely just a generalist and participating in learning um, whatever I could, because um, it does take a lot to learn on um, uh, about just angel investing in general and how to get started and and all of that stuff. And um, and yeah, I met Tone back in uh, probably about 2015 or so um, in in New York. And um, and yeah, Unconfiscatable was like uh, was our our baby. I'm less involved this year. Uh, you know, him and Mel are doing a lot of it. So maybe this year I can actually just go and hang out and not be like, you know, stressed out working. Um, but, you know, we've hung out quite a few times. One, uh, Ugly Old Goats mm -hmm. Conference in Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. That was a good time, too. Uh, you and I riding mm -hmm. around in those um, whatever they call them, like yeah. Raptor things Yeah, Baja 1000 uh, off-road vehicles. That was a great time. That's some of the funnest stuff I've ever done. Um, yeah, I don't know if you guys ever seen this, but there's uh, there's a, a desert race in Baja, California, where they drive these, like, it's like a metal, like a little car with metal bars and, like, huge suspension and huge wheels, and they race them in the desert. Um And uh, it's a great time. Ugly Old Goat, who's my mentor, he uh, he had a conference, and then we a bunch of us gathered there. And uh, man, that is a good time. I, I, you know, it's 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 hard to explain how fun driving those things in the desert at like 60 miles an hour is. It's just crazy. And the desert, this isn't like like uh, Saudi Arabian desert, even though they do it too. This is like Mexican desert. So you're dodging rocks and like driving down dried up riverbeds and, uh, uh, you know, just rocky terrain. And there was like maybe 20 or 30 of these cars full of Bitcoin maximalists. And uh, Mike and I were, everybody had to co-pilot with somebody and then switch spots. So that was, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. I freaked you out a little bit. I was going a little too I fast. You told me to slow down, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> I think it was you that was a little freaked out if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. When I'm not driving, I'm freaked out. It's hard. It's hard sitting in the in the passenger seat, and I think we're both freaked out because it's hard sitting in the passenger seat and 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 trust that somebody's not going to flip the car and like spin it when you're when you're driving forty or fifty in the desert and doing tight turns and stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was that's just a great time. Yeah, it's hard to compare it with anything else. Like the only experience, like at that level of like 
let's say adrenaline and, and and new and cool is something like Burning Man, where you're just that peak art. You ever been to Burning Man? I haven't been to Burning Man. I'm I I've kind of always wanted to go. I'm more of a music guy. I know that this is like a whole experience, but um, someone was talking the other day, like, why isn't there like a Burning Man for like Bitcoin? You know, not like Pork Fest or right. whatever, but why isn't there like a Burning Man type of deal for Bitcoin? Well, they so. Yeah, that's a good idea. They could, like, burn a giant yellow. We had plans for that already uh, three, four years ago in in Sicily in the hot September uh, Bitcoin burn. Oh, shit. So so when is that? It's coming up? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) You could burn a big, you could burn a big, like, Janet Yellen or some, you know, you could burn, like, a big, uh, you know, Schwab or something. Yeah, we can burn a, a fake Toshi as well. That'd be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, Burning Man is a music festival as well. So, like, there's like that was one of the cool things. There is you, you'd be at there'd be a huge stage with you know some DJ, you know, doing doing uh, electronic music of of one kind. Let's say factory kind of grunge or whatever, and then you you ride your little bicycle down desert uh a mile or like half a mile and you'd be at a hip-hop concert and then you drive a half a mile and you'd be at like a dead mouse concert and then you drive a half mile like there's a huge range of music shows at burning man that was one of the things that kind of blew my mind so there's no reason we couldn't have like a bitcoin camp in fact i was there with a like a decentralist camp from vancouver that had some bitcoin ogs but also were like really into doge and all kinds of other stuff and uh, we were we were like orange peeling people there. That was in 2018. Uh, but there's no reason we can't have like a baller Bitcoin camp and bring a bunch of people and just put on a show at Burning Man. That would be super cool, dude. Yeah, man. That'd be elite, though. Like that's gotta be bull market. We would we would crush it. It would it would uh, just the photography alone would be yeah, absolutely like so a, good. A Bitcoin a Bitcoin Burning Man, and I see we got my good friend Doug Scribner in here who. Uh, who is our all-star keyboard player for the uh, the world-renowned Satoshi Rakamoto events, and uh, I believe he may be, he may be creating a Monday night uh, Bitcoin jam here in Miami. Not exactly sure about that, but um, stay stay tuned for for uh, for updates. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know Doug Scribner. I've, I've met Doug Scribner a few times. He's uh, a man with style. Last time I saw him, he had like a really big cowboy hat, and uh, I still remember it. That's how. That's how awesome that was. How I picked that hat yeah. was. And he's um, single. Okay, Mike. Oh boy! And he's he's all you see. All his Instagram photos are him in a jet in a yacht with his <laughs> with his dog. So uh, and his buddy. So his crew. So anyway, um, good good stuff. Mike, tell us tell us about the the VC world. What's going on in the VC Lightning world? What is you know what are the, some of the big let's say names you've invested in? How does it's a syndicate? It's not a traditional let's see say VC firm. So tell us a little bit about that and um, and tell us what's interesting. What's going on in there? Well, it is a it is a VC firm, at least a boutique uh, VC firm, and a syndicate is one way that people 
uh, can invest in companies with low minimums and get started angel investing. So we did raise a pilot fund, uh, a pretty small fund that is almost fully deployed. Um, and to complement that, we have these deal by deal uh, investment opportunities where for maybe $1,000, if you were looking to get started with angel investing, you could invest in, you know, Strike or Coin Corner or, you know, Fountain or many different companies. So I'm pretty passionate about getting people started, getting them going because it is difficult. It's difficult to get access to these things. It's difficult to turn up you know, deal flow. And there's just like, you know, crypto, I guess there's a million scams out there. Um, so, but if you were in our syndicate and, you know, you would just get a deal for Azteco or Geyser or Pleb Lab or Thunder Games or all these companies that we know and love as Bitcoiners. And if you wanted to get rolling for some thousand dollar minimums, that's kind of the, the purpose of the syndicate. Uh, and you get to read all the updates from the companies. You get to potentially be impactful and, um, and contribute, or maybe it's great for partnerships or networking, or maybe you're looking for a job. Um, I don't know. So that's pretty much the syndicate model. It's uh, your own deal by deal uh, investment opportunities for low minimums, as opposed to a fund, which normally has, say, a hundred thousand dollar minimum, sometimes 250, sometimes even more, uh, where you don't really make any decisions about which companies you're investing in or not. You're just a limited partner in a fund. You ship them a hundred thousand dollars and then hopefully, um, you know, three to five years later, they start shipping a more money back to you. Uh, that's kind of that. So yeah, the name is lightning ventures, but we invest in things that are not just uh, lightning companies. Uh, we've invested in some things that are building on, um, you know, other layer twos like um, like Liquid, um, you know, the Blockstream sidechain, uh, like digital markets, or companies like Relay, which is a DCA exchange in Europe. Um, they haven't actually implemented lightning yet, or even Swan Bitcoin, which we've invested in, I think, three times. And um, they're about to uh, launch Lightning. So, um, yeah, a lot of different uh, different companies that you can invest in now, which is different than the way that it was before. I mean, you have gaming. Uh, we have an opportunity right now, a really cool company called Pink Frog Studios. Uh, Pink Frog Studios um, is the team that was largely responsible for Candy Crush. Uh, Candy Crush Saga uh, and other King titles, uh, which was that company. And they're out to build a social Gen Z um, sort of playable content creator uh, game, a uh, blockbuster game, which, of course, uh, everything is monetized uh, with Bitcoin and leveraging the Lightning Network. You know, so um, that's really cool because when you turn back the clock, um, there was really not much you could invest in in Bitcoin. It was pretty much just exchanges, you know. Um, there wasn't a lot. And now you have a whole bunch of, of different uh, things out there. Things in music like Wavelake, uh, which is a really cool company. If you are a musician uh, and you have some, um, some music, you should definitely up, upload it to Wavelake and create that. It's kind of like a Bandcamp sort of SoundCloud um, deal for for um 
musicians, you know, or Fountain in the podcasting space. Really cool. If you're not uh, advertising on Fountain, you definitely should because it works or promoting your podcast on Fountain for 20, 30 bucks. I mean, it really works and you can just pay with your credit card and all that. But that value for value model is pretty popular. Um, so yeah, so we've invested in probably, I don't know, 40 or so, uh, Bitcoin companies and, um, we're relentless and we're, we're doing the best we can. Awesome. Yeah, that's really interesting. Fountain, Fountain is, is a great company. I really like where they're going with the app. I think the app is, uh, you know, very good and it's, and it's, in, in, they're improving it, uh, regularly. So it's, it's a very cool app. Um, what, what, um, let's say from an investment perspective, let's say people here on the show want to join the syndicate and maybe throw a few thousand dollars at, at, you know, like invest in, in, in various companies that you guys are investing in with the syndicate. Um, but maybe they've never done it before. So what, what should they know about how this, this side of, of, you know, this kind of investing works? Well, it's super illiquid. So if um, liquidity is something that's important to you, um, you know, long uh, time horizon sort of private investments is not the way to go because under most circumstances, um, you can't really just hit the sell button. All right. So unlike, you know, public stocks and equities uh, or even Bitcoin, for that matter, you know, when you invest, let's just say twenty five hundred dollars into something like Wasabi Wallet, which we actually have a deal for right now. um, When you invest that money, I mean, there's not much you can do. Um, Maybe they're acquired. You know, maybe there's an IPO. Maybe there's a merger. There's another exit. There's many, many different ways that, that these can shake out um, later. Uh, but these are really early stage companies and it takes a long time, uh, for these to kind of mature and harvest, um, for you to get your money back. If you were investing in late stage companies, which is what I did when I got started, I just invested in later stage companies that were closer to an IPO, things like Spotify, things like DraftKings and Poshmark and um, all of those type of companies, right? They were private, um, but they were already worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And they ended up going public, a lot of them in, you know, 12 to 18 months, uh, when you can actually start to realize some of those returns. But for the early stage stuff, if you're investing in these things, you pretty much have to know like, okay, um, that's gone. Uh, which personally, and I know Juan, you're uh, a trader, probably a much better trader than me, um, is, you know, having the decision at all times, what do I do? Do I buy more? Do I sell more? Do I sell half? Do I trim this position? Do I add a little bit here? Where's my stop loss? You know, all of those type of things put me into this like investor decision fatigue um, that I hate. But after you click the button and you're just, you know, going to invest $2,000 in Blockstream or whatever the company is, you know, there's nothing you can do. Uh, you're not monitoring a price every day. There's no app on your phone that's going to tell you uh, how much your $2,000 is worth a month later. Um, all you can really do is champion the company and cheer them on, try to be helpful. So for me, that's a feature and not a bug. 
but a lot of people need that liquidity. So I would say that that's the first thing uh, that you have to think about. The second thing is um, you have to be responsible. There's a lot of sensitive, confidential information that's shared uh, within a deal memo. uh, And we have a zero tolerance policy for leaks of that. And thank God that we haven't had any issues. It doesn't only uh, get them removed from Lightning Ventures. It would also get them banned from the AngelList platform, which I would not want if I was an investor or uh, I would not want to be permanently banned from that platform. But, you know, you have to treat a lot of this stuff uh, with a certain level of sophistication and professionalism. Uh, And I know that Lightning Ventures exudes raucous amateurism. Uh, But uh, on uh, on that front, you know, we have to um, we have to be respectful of those things. So that's another thing to take into consideration. And finally, um, Unlike Reg CF and crowdfunding sort of options that are out there, um, this is still an accredited investor playground, uh, which is actually a joke, really, when you think about what it means to be an accredited investor, and especially when you put it with something like walking into a casino and losing your life savings on a hand of blackjack. That's perfectly fine. You can be anyone and do that. But invest or buy for that in- matter. Or Binance, exactly. You don't need to be an accredited. That's a, that's a good one, Juan. I'm going to write that down. Uh, you don't need to be an accredited investor uh, to lose all your money on Binance. But if you wanted to invest a thousand dollars in Voltage or Start Nine or some really cool company where you might make you know a thousand x or more on your money, um, then the government steps in and wants to make sure uh, that they protect you, which I think is just a conspiracy, right? They don't <laughs> want. They don't want well, you making oh money. My God. Yeah, well, I mean, on that topic, I just have to point out how funny this Ripple lawsuit was because, you know, everybody was so concerned or or excited that the SEC was going to smash down the, SEC, the uh, XRP for essentially selling uh, a scam coin, scam utility token to a bunch of retail plebs who clearly don't know what's going on and they're, they're total... SEC, uh, X, XRP fanboys. There's a lot of like the XRP armies. It exists, gentle people. You, if you haven't seen them, uh, they're real and they really like XRP, but a lot of them are just people on the internet. Some of them are real investors and legit people, but, um, you know, everybody was like, oh my God, uh, this lawsuit is a big deal. And what was my, my understanding of the lawsuit was, you know, or at least the, the prejudgment that just came out is, uh, Actually, you can you can sell in secondary markets to unaccredited investors, and that's like not really an issue. The problem is that you sold to accredited investors. That's that's what you did wrong, right? Because you didn't, I don't know, do it through our channels or whatever, uh, which was hilarious, right? Like it's they're protecting the wealthy people, not 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 the not people that are, you know. They're protecting accredited investors, not unaccredited investors, right? People with $200,000 plus a year, not less. That's the people that the SEC is concerned about protecting was my, let's say, interpretation of the ruling. What, what did you think about that that lawsuit? Just, you know, real quick. It's actually the opposite of what you would expect. You would expect them to say that, you know, they, they broke securities laws by selling to retail. Um, so to me, honestly, it really didn't make a lot of sense. Um, just that you said that selling to, uh, accredited investors, and that was like a partial win, I guess, 
um, for Ripple. I'm really not an expert on that ruling, though. Um, I, I'm really not. But all I know is, is if you ever see a, uh, a pop-up that says, are you an accredited investor? Um, you should definitely just, you should click yes. Um, you should, you should always identify as an accredited investor. Um, Hey, Smee is in here. He's a, um, co-founder of a company called Thea. They were in the last YC batch. Um, and those are the type of companies that you might see in the Lightning Ventures syndicate uh, if you uh, were were so to join. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it, Juan. You know, we do the best that we well, can for these companies, and then we try to we try to champion them and help them. That's awesome. And you guys have been around for two years. What is the what is the expectation of like the exit timeline uh, for you guys? Because you know, I I, I love. The VC world, I follow it. I try to follow it. Uh, I listen to the that VC podcast, uh, All In podcast, great podcast. If you guys don't listen to it, uh, it's a few like I got four OG VCs that are now basically crushing it in the uh, financial media world. Um, and you know, they they always say like, yeah, it's a ten year investment timelines, right? So it's definitely long term, right? Um, but how do you guys think about it? And have you had any exits or any kind of, yeah, is there any stories there, any particular stories that, that you can tell us about that uh, have inspired your yeah, the syndicate? Yeah, sure. So in terms of exits, man, I got some great stories, pers uh, personal stories that are outside of the Bitcoin land that can show you just how good or bad uh, these things can go. That's for sure. Um, and you know, when you get started doing this stuff, just like anything, you should probably invest small amounts, uh, take little nibbles, you know, I mean, that's usually what happens is, is I talk to someone about angel investing and it's like, they say, Oh my God, I'm never doing that again. It was terrible. And it's like, what happened? It's like, Oh my God, I put 50 grand in two companies and they both went to zero. Um, that's not what you want to do. I mean, you should want to put maybe $2,000, uh, in 25 companies, and then follow them all. And when they do go to zero, it's less painful. Um, and until you kind of learn the art of this stuff. And it's definitely um, just that. Um, it's an art and it's early and we haven't had any exits yet for Lightning Ventures. Uh, we also really haven't had any zeros uh, just yet. I mean, there are companies that, you know, are, they do, it ebbs and flows, right? Uh, for example, there was one company, they had their best month ever. Uh, they hit profitability. They did seven figures in sales and, you know, operation choke point. Um, they lost their banking relationship and their business was basically turned off overnight. Uh, so, you know, uh, it must've felt really great for that founder to fire off that investor update and be like, look at this and the charts and the graphs and you put in, uh, the images there and it looks great. And two weeks later, you're, you've done, you've went to zero, uh, in terms of sales. And then you got to regroup again, you know, you got to rebuild those relationships. Maybe you look outside the United States. It's a net positive because it forces you to be like, oh my God, Mexico's wide open. Mexico's great. We should be doing business down there, you know? And, um, so the other thing is, is when you're, when you're, um, investing in these type of things, if you read the books, even the Calacanis book, you mentioned all in, uh, when you read these books, they're going to tell you that like 80% of it's going to go to zero, 
right? You know, nine out of 10 fail. And that one that doesn't, it's going to get back, you know, it's going to return the entire fund plus some and yada, yada. And that's true. I wouldn't say that nine out of 10 fail. I mean, nine out of 10 of my angel investments have certainly not failed. I've got plenty of plenty that have in there all outside the Bitcoin world. Actually, Level, I invested in Level, LVL. Uh, that went to zero. That was a Bitcoin company. Um, I also invested in BlockFi. That went to zero. And that was really dumb. And that's what you get, Muzzman, for shitcoining. Okay? You pay the price uh, when you shitcoin. But like the music industry or the entertainment industry, I can't find another thing out there uh, where you can fail most of the time and still be wildly successful. So that's kind of the thing that you want to remember, okay, is if you took $25,000 and if you invested in 10 Bitcoin startups with $2,500 each, okay, and then you watched them, okay, and they're like not going to fail overnight. It's not like, uh, and it's gone. Um, but, you know, you read the updates from the founders. You can get a good idea. Are they raising a bridge round? You know, um, how are their KPIs looking? You can sort of watch all those things. And they always raise money again. They're, it's never like, oh, my God, I missed my opportunity. I'll never get to invest in XYZ company again. You'll always get more opportunities because these companies are going to raise subsequent rounds indefinitely. So... Um, you don't want to invest more money into companies that don't have kind of meaningful progress. And that's one of the main things is people will continue to invest in companies that are not doing better um, for the same valuation or lower valuations. It's not like trading. There's no averaging down. Um, it, it doesn't work like that. So of those 10 companies that you invested in, in our example, you know, when one or two of them really break out and really move and have that inflection point, those are the ones that you want to come in the next time and invest more. You know, uh, maybe you want to invest five thousand or six thousand after they've shown themselves and emerged as the winners. You know, um, so look, it takes forever to learn this stuff. I love it, and I'm super nerdy, yeah, but I love it. Yeah, you had a, a presentation at Adapting Bitcoin. You did a little workshop, and I mean, it wasn't, it was a good hour presentation. Or I think, I don't know if you had more than half an hour, but man, that was a fantastic presentation. Uh, was that recorded? Is there anywhere we can, we can uh, watch that again? No, it wasn't. Um, I had, That's I had bad. another one that was at Bitcoin uh, 23 in Miami this year. It was a different presentation, but it was still a lot of fun. And it goes through all sorts of different uh, like fundraising tips, really for founders or anyone building. But I guess it's applicable to anyone, right? And friends and family rounds and syndicates and crowdfunding and what is all this stuff. So um, I think that one is definitely online. And yeah, I've actually wanted to like record something professionally and then maybe maybe put it out and, and, and do that. Yeah, anytime you guys can listen to Mike Moss talk about investing in VC world, uh, you definitely should do that. It's uh, really, really high signal uh, stuff. So I really appreciate that. And I really enjoyed that conversation. I wish I could go back and at that presentation, go back to, and watch it again because it was really blowing my mind on multiple levels. Um, you know, I feel like I feel like if I had been born in California, 
and raised in California, I would have probably been in the startup world. I really enjoyed that energy and I enjoyed that world a lot. Um, I'm I'm in my 30s now. I feel like I'm maybe kind of like I, that. That was like the, the, that energy you have in your 20s is sort of very strong. So let let me uh, let's let, let's kind of close out this this part of the conversation with this question. What do you look for in in founders and in teams? What what is the kind of personality profile that you want in a lightning startup uh, team? And um, you know, for people that want to start companies but maybe don't know if they're the right person for it. You know, what, what should they know about that? Well, first off, Juan, your 30s are your best. All right, let's start with that, okay? Your 30s are the best, okay? You got all those stupid mistakes out in your 20s, okay? You're way smarter, and you start to finally make a little bit of money, I mean, the 30s are great, so that's a good thing. And, you know, if you see in your 20s, you might be really, really naive and make a lot of mistakes. Um, what do you look for in a team? Well, um, you look for uh, experience. Um, you look for, uh, like, for example, I talked about Pink Frog Studios earlier, right? Uh, they scaled Candy Crush Saga, they already have experience scaling like a multi-billion dollar game, you know, as opposed to people who are doing this for the first time, you know, maybe founders that have been through boot camps like YC, you know, maybe they've taken something from that. Maybe founders who've had successful exits in adjacent industries, okay, before, but they've shown that they know how to build something. All right. That's great. Um, even founders that have maybe failed three times. Um, it's really not a bad thing to fail uh, with like three startups and then be on your fourth. Um, that's often when it starts to go right. So, um, you know, a lot of people have a lot of rules about teams. Some people say I won't invest in a solo founder unless that founder is technical. They just have that rule. If you're a non-technical solo founder, they won't invest in you. You know, uh, some people like to invest in two founders where one of them really understands sales and marketing and the other one is technical, right? They'll tell you that this is the best co-founder combination. Um, some people like myself, I like to invest in founders who are relatives. Um, I like to invest in two brothers uh, who are building a company together. Um, and it really comes down to conflict resolution. And they've been handling that conflict resolution since one was fighting with the other over the toy uh, since their earliest years, you know. Uh, and these are all things to to take into consideration and think about um, when you're when you're investing in the team. And, you know, what do you look at at the earliest stages of an investment in a company? Well, that's pretty much all you have to look at. You know, they might give you a primitive data room and maybe there's some type of cap table there with hardly anything on it and they have incorporation documents and you know wire instructions and maybe they have a go-to-market plan or a short executive summary but there really isn't too much more um than than that team and that person so you close your eyes hold your nose and pray Juan that's what you want to do that's how you get the best results <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Mus. Feel free to, to stay in the show. Uh, Riso has now joined, and I'm trying to figure out how to...
how to pronounce his name. So welcome, Risa, to the show, and tell us how do we how do how do we pronounce your your last name? Oh wow, um, yeah, Rizzo. Rizzo is good. Uh, if you're if you're Rizzo? real Italian, you can do Rizzo, but that's uh, it's not necessary. I think it's uh, Rizzo. Pretty okay. Americanized at this Love point. Uh, Love it. Well, welcome to the show. Any any parting words uh, or any final words on that topic, uh, Mike? No, I don't think so. You've got the man Pete Rizzo here, all right? Let him <laughs> wow. talk. You have any, any idea into. how many amazing articles he's written over the years? I mean, my God, you got a legend here, buddy. Wow, thanks, man. Yeah, too definitely. Kind, too definitely. kind, man. Well, if you stay and hang out, we can chat a little bit. So. Yeah, please. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you for coming, Rizzo. Uh, how, how's your day going? Pretty good. I'm actually recovering from like uh, pretty severe dehydration earlier this week. So big shout out to Saltines. Okay. We pretty much like the Bitcoin of crackers uh, and uh, you know Ocean Spray Juice. You know, not sponsored by either of them, but <laughs> real big fans of like both of those brands at the moment. All right, all right. Glad you're doing better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and just just real quick. I mean, we don't have to get into the details, but. Uh, the, your Twitter account was recently hacked, uh, and and I heard that you had pretty good security. Was it like an inside job at Twitter? What what happened there? Can you give us any any juicy insight into oh, wow. that? Oh yeah, that's uh, I had almost forgotten about that. Uh, but yeah, sometime in July, uh, yeah, I was part of that big uh, series of. Uh, it was kind of shocking to me, like the crypto personality uh, hacks. I think Peter Schiff and. Uh, who else? I think they got Jason Lowry recently. I've been emailing him with some 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 tips mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, just a bunch of different. Uh, I think they got BitBoy Crypto as well. Accounts got kind of hacked and uh, used to kind of propagate scams, which was uh, you know obviously not so great. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I did not have great security at the at first, <laughs> so I will say that. Like if you. Uh, you know, are wanting to secure your accounts, you know, what I would probably recommend at this point is just go straight to YubiKey and then just turn off kind of any SMS based notifications. I think like mm -hmm. having done like a couple security audits on like the back end, um, you know, it's just not safe to be using uh mm -hmm. you know, the phone number. Uh because basically if you get SIM swapped, which is what happened to me, uh pretty trivial for them to kind of lock you out of your account. And it seems like um you know, uh, I just didn't have 2FA set up originally. Uh, I just didn't think my account was big enough. Uh, you know, you got big accounts with like millions of followers or whatever. And, uh, you know, they got me good. Uh, it was really only the uh, Twitter blue. You know, they have my, uh, you know, kind of credit card and uh, user ID information because, you know, I was a Twitter blue subscriber. Uh, they were able to kind of confirm against that, that I was able to get the account back. But, yeah, there was a, there was a few days there where it was looking pretty uh pretty oblique <laughs> for my account uh but uh yeah uh, wow. thankfully the uh, elon gods smiled on me and they gave me back my uh <laughs> my little account so uh, yeah yeah that, that that's crazy yeah the swim swaps have to be the most uh effective uh, hack or attack vector in this in this industry that that i've seen i mean the, Beyond being getting scammed in some some crypt, some crypto, you know, I mean, it's sim swaps are just very very dangerous and very difficult to secure against. You basically can't rely on it as uh, on your phone number as two FA in yeah. any way. You have to find ways around it. So 
Yeah, and it was really that uh, intermediate period that I think was like so confusing because I, you know, there was a part, there was a point like where I had access to the account and the hacker still had access to the account, but we we kind of couldn't lock each other out. Um, Mm -hmm. And they ended up sort of, so that's the point where it's like I had a YubiKey and it was still kind of hooked up to my phone. It was really like, I ended up having to basically just start a new email, connect the Twitter to that new email that the hacker didn't know. Uh, and then hook that up to only a YubiKey and not my phone. Uh, and so that's why I think like any of the mixing strategies, this is what I didn't know. I didn't realize that, you know, just having the phone was a liability and that just, I thought having more security options was better when in fact, uh, it wasn't. So I actually kind of opened up, uh, kind of a window for me to get hacked a second time, even though I kind of thought I was doing the right thing, but you know, you don't get any help from Twitter, right? Like they don't... (laughs) At best, you're, you know, you get a couple sentences from somebody, so it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a great situation. Right. That's crazy. Well, I'm glad you got it back. Um, I appreciate your account. You're you're getting uh, some of the best memes out there and, and getting a lot of engagement. That's very cool. Um, tell us what is like before we. I have a bunch of questions for you, and I want us to talk about lightning. I want us to talk about uh, the Bitcoin world. But what is um, What's what are you working on today? What is at the top of your mind uh, in this era of the Bitcoin Bitcoin story? Oh boy, man! Um, yeah, I'm trying to think about what this next you know Bitcoin cycle is going to look like, um, you know, and what what's going to happen in the kind of bull market ahead. Um, you know, so most of what I do on the day to day basis is I do you know, archival research. So you know, essentially. You know, I go back through the forums and archives of Bitcoin. I mean, you know, one of the things about Bitcoin that's really interesting as a technology, just from a really broad point of view, is like we just have so much data on like the early days of Bitcoin, right? There are really like thousands and thousands of text logs from like little channels and uh, forums of things about people talking about Bitcoin over time. And that's kind of interesting because if you think about other technologies, whether it's like radio or, you know, television or the telegraph or or something like that, you know, you don't have that kind of history, right? So like with the airplane, you know, you maybe know that like the airplane was a great invention and like, maybe, you know, a little bit about the Wright brothers, but like, you know, in terms of like how you got from their like pretty shitty bicycle plane to like the jet, you know, like that's, you know, there's not a lot, uh, you know, I'm sure there's like, you know, there's some books and stuff, but, you know, it's not the kind of information, the volume point is just so much greater uh, than we would have had about stuff like that back then, even like the internet, right? Like the early days of the internet, um, you know, you don't have like pages and pages and pages of information. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's like Bitcoin grew up on the internet. Uh, so you actually do have like a ton of, um, you know, data or, you know, logs and records, Um so I kind of go through these things, I sort them. The Twitter is kind of like a best of, you know, I kind of take some stuff that's like funny or interesting that I find, like kind of as I'm doing my work. But yeah, a lot of the stuff I really haven't published yet. I've, I've kind of been working since the last bull market on stuff that I hope to put out in the next bull market. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, you got to sell into the, <laughs> you got to sell when it's good. Uh, so, you know, just trying to, trying to like work on, um, you know, developing like kind of who were the important people in Bitcoin history and like, why were they important? And then really kind of building that scaffolding out. Right. So, you know, obviously we know Satoshi's important and we know Hal's important, but I actually think like the average, you know, Bitcoiner, or, like the average, you know, after you get to Hal, it's like, you know, well, who else is there? You know, people who know are there and maybe 
you know, Mike knows and maybe you know Juan, but like, you know, the average person like, you know, probably can't name like another few people. So there's no who are the Thomas Jeffersons or the John Adams or like the, the other like, you know, people who were important um, to the revolution. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I think that's kind of what I'm working on. It's like I see Bitcoin as like pretty foundational kind of like pivot in human thought and that we have like all this information about the people who shaped it, like Satoshi and beyond. And, you know, kind of what I'm working on is trying to like figure out is responsible for what parts of this idea. Um, Cause I don't think that all of it is Satoshi as much as we want to kind of credit him as the inventor. Like, I mean, I think he, he figured out a lot of it, but you know, there's a, there's a good amount of Bitcoin that I don't think Satoshi really understood. Um, and that was kind of like added later by other people. Um, so I don't know. I think that's, pretty important and i think like people in the future will want to know that because i think uh, if bitcoin actually becomes a serious part of their lives um i think it's going to be something where it's you know they'll probably want to have an idea of like how it came to be that they live in like that kind of world so i don't know hopefully that's helpful yeah yeah that's really interesting uh what do you think what do you think satoshi did not understand uh you know obviously satoshi nakamoto is almost like a mythical um creature at this point um you know there's almost there's potential for like uh, the cult of satoshi to to rise some sort of like pseudo internet modern religion you know could rise out of it but you know in some ways when you when you look close you see a man or you see a human being that's that was you know acting on 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 a passion and on on uh, an understanding of the world and that understanding has definitely grown since satoshi you know like the whole vsv crew have basically mythologized satoshi and gotten scammed by <laughs> yeah that's by like really interesting. they're a, they're like an interesting part of the branch right because they have their own like alternative religious history right so yeah yeah so so what do you see as like the things that you know we can substantiate as satoshi not really uh grasping yeah uh, that's I give you two examples of that um, that I think are fairly obvious. So I think one of them is that I don't think Satoshi really understood how Bitcoin would be kind of governed like as a project without him or without a maintainer. Right. So like one of them is that we know that he, you know, sort of appoints or like makes an effort to get Gavin Andreessen to kind of take over the role of lead maintainer within Bitcoin. So you know, historically within open source projects, open source projects usually have like one owner maintainer. And so, you know, Satoshi kind of inherits this idea of open source uh, software governance from a prior community. And so the interesting thing is that within open source software governance, there's really only like two types of like governance models. It's like either one guy kind of rules like with an iron fist, kind of like Linux with Linus. And then the other model is like, you know, uh, maybe there's like uh, one guy who rules and there's a bunch of people who have little kingdoms. So it's kind of like a, uh, you know, maybe like more of a medieval structure. Um, but there isn't more governance than that. So like all open source projects fall within like one of those two camps. Uh, there's a great book about that called The Cathedral and the Bazaar that kind of like goes through the history of open source. Uh, and so Satoshi doesn't know how Bitcoin can like work without that, which is why he kind of, I think you know, looks for somebody to take that position. And then the interesting question then is like, you know, uh, do you have like a, do you really have like a non-government currency if, you know, there is one guy who kind of like, you know, at the end of the day kind of, you know, makes decisions for the database, right? Or for the project. And I think that, 
I don't know. I don't feel like Satoshi like really knew. I think he knew like part of him that he needed to go away for like there to be a solution there, but I don't really see any evidence that he understood that. And I think like, you know, the the big drama I think of the fork wars is really, you know, it is a drama about who gets to govern Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is governed. Uh, and so because Satoshi doesn't like leave any clear direction there or his direction was ultimately unsatisfactory for the users of Bitcoins, like one or the other, um, you know, there's this big conflict um, from something that he didn't, wasn't able to kind of, you know, give any insight on. I'd say the other one would be how Bitcoin could evolve to handle other arbitrary assets or, um, so the big thing here would be like the name coin discussion that he was part of, you know, so there was this idea early on that like, you know, Bitcoin was perhaps somewhat limited by like the current rules of the consensus and the abilities of like the code and that you might need or want sort of other cryptocurrency systems. And so, you know, to the extent that Satoshi really comments on that, uh, it's sort of like, well, we can use Bitcoin to accomplish that, right? That's kind of what merge mining, you know, you might have heard more about that recently with like Paul Stortz kind of like being more forward and talking about that. But like, you know, that's kind of an idea that Satoshi really like, there's kind of like one blog post where he refers to this. It's not really an idea that he develops or champions or like leaves a very significant amount of material on. It's kind of like, you know, this random, I don't know, it's very much like Eisenhower's last address, right? It's it's a kind of a interesting, like somebody said something interesting on the way out and then people still think about it. But, you know, today that's like, how do we have you know, is it desirable to represent other assets on Bitcoin or to have Bitcoin's blockchain um, and consensus layer uh, or economy, however you want to define that, uh, you know, have that activity? So that's, I would say, a big conflict today. So a lot of what you see in, I think, with like the kind of two cultural camps in Bitcoin now, um, you know, is still kind of a product of that. There are people who think that we should be doing and can expand Bitcoin to, you know, have these features of other cryptocurrencies. I mean, some of these words are really awkward, right? I don't know how to quite describe it, which I think is part of the problem. So, but I think everybody wants to expand the con the Bitcoin economy to do these other things. Uh, Satoshi seems to suggest that that's possible, uh, but then doesn't really stick around for long enough to give much detail on that, right? So those are like a couple areas where it's pretty obvious, I would say, that he didn't have a great answer to those things. <laughs> or, or maybe yeah. he didn't. Um, so, you know, uh, he left an imperfect, I think even on those two grounds, like it's pretty easy to see that like we did a lot of, or are currently doing a lot more work to like build out Bitcoin. Yeah. The, the story of, of, of Namecoin and Satoshi's, uh, role in it is, I find it really interesting and I'll just, I'll just, just to give people a little bit of that story, um, Aaron Schwartz, who was kind of a legend of, of the internet world in that, in that era. And I think he still is, you know, rest in peace. Uh, he, him and other people came up with like a way to do DNS uh, via Bitcoin. So you could have like a domain name on top of Bitcoin, but they were like trying to get it on top of Bitcoin. And then Satoshi came and, and kind of said, so this is my recollection of the story. He kind of said something like, well, maybe we shouldn't do DNS on top of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is more of a monetary system. And it, you know, the, we don't want to put everything on top of Bitcoin necessarily, but so maybe there should be a, a chain that's separate for Bitcoin for for Namecoin, which is going to be this DNS layer, and let the chains have their own fate. That's that's 
one of the quotes that I remember from Satoshi, let the chains have their own fate. But then he like plugged in Namecoin's proof of work into Bitcoin's proof of work such that Namecoin has like 90 something percent of the hashing power even today, as far as I know, of Bitcoin. So it's a highly secure sort of alternative blockchain with a coin that trades at about a, at a dollar has been trading. It's like a stable coin it's been oh, yeah, trading at a dollar for like 10 years. I, yeah. I don't remember that fate quote. Uh, I do remember that like <clears throat> there's a kind of interesting comment is that Hal Finney actually comments on Satoshi's merge mining proposal. And he says uh, something like, Satoshi, is this you endorsing multiple competing currencies on multiple blockchains? And then Satoshi never answers him, which I think is like really interesting because it's like a very direct question. Uh, and like, you know, we all kind of, I think, wish there was a direct answer to that question because it's kind of like, you know, that's essentially what we're still asking like 10 years later. But uh, I think it's funny that like Hal asked it, asked it directly to Satoshi and then he never, he never responded. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, these are very complex topics and obviously Bitcoin governance has sort of taken its own shape. Uh, do you I kind of uh, think of it as a Congress of sorts? How do you how do you look at it? It's definitely not a quite a, it's not a fiefdom, right? So it's, uh, uh, it's a new kind of governance model. Well, I sort of look at it as like uh, there was this idea that like crypto anarchy was possible, right? So from the 90s, you have the cypherpunk group that, you know, they, they foresaw this idea that you know, you would have sort of this internet frontier where there would be kind of, you know, essentially no government. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bitcoin certainly has aspects of government. I, it's, you know, I would say that it's aspirationally, it's crypto anarchy. And I think the people like Lop or Adam Back would probably defend it on those terms, that it's a functioning crypto anarchic system where, you know, if you want to put your capital at risk to make change and your social pedigree to make change, like it's possible for, for governance to form around that. You know, obviously the Gavin and recent view would have been that like, you know, I mean, Gavin was a huge proponent that Bitcoin was a democratic money and a people's money and something that would be, you know, kind of shaped by majority opinion. Um, and I think the big conclusion of the fourth wars is that that was really kind of thrown out. So I don't think you can say that there's majority decision making in Bitcoin. But then, you know, the lesson of the fourth wars is like, what are we left with? And then you have the activation of Taproot. Um, I don't know, for, for those who were there, that's a whole other rabbit hole. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Bitcoin governance is interesting. I mean, charitably, uh, you know, we've succeeded at crypto anarchy. And then uh, maybe critically, uh, it's a bit of a mess sometimes, you know. But there are people yeah. who argue that that's good. So, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the fork wars a little bit because, you know, I think there is like my, let's say, impression and, and, and recollection of it, or at least my, my, the lesson that I'm, that I'm left with. And I think this is sort of the predominant narrative within Bitcoin maximalism is that it was a kind of democratic victory against a kind of corporate oligopoly. You know, the, the just, quick overview of that fork war uh a a cohort of corporations including bitmain the biggest uh miner were wanting to increase the block size uh during an era of very high fees and then the way that that was and and the the mining pools were signaling for an increase in the block size which was segwit to x and so on. it was like integrating segwit but increasing the block size and and the, the resolution of that was that uh, people running, you know, basically Bitcoin nodes decided to block that hardware upgrade and actually 
the the miners gave gave the Segway2x like 12 hours to win the proof of work and then they basically got defeated so it was it was kind of actually a mimetic populist counter coup right or like a, a defense of of the of the nakamoto consensus so from that perspective i see the democratic element of it or the the sort of populist element of it um yeah but that's that's my take on it i, I, yeah. I go ahead oh yeah and uh yeah i think you've kind of framed the popular narrative right which is that there was kind of a corporate attempted corporate takeover uh where you know the businesses and the miners attempted to kind of you know, install majority governance or kind of install their own governance in the system. I mean, I think there's elements of truth to that. I think um, if I would pick a couple problems with the current uh, narrative formation, I think it's one, um, you know, it's very questionable whether like the game's theory on the UASF like ever played out, to be honest. Like, I don't think we actually have enough data to suggest that if, you know, both sides like really took that to a head, you know, what, what would have actually happened? Um you know, you get to some really interesting edge cases there uh, that are hard to explain, and then they kind of become the product of like certain people at specific times, like making very specific decisions. I'll just give one off the bat. You know, the exchanges kind of met and had like a backroom meeting where they decided that Bitcoin would keep like the BTC ticker and that there wouldn't be like a larger, you know, litigation about how that ticker would have changed hands. But I mean, those are the kind of things that people were discussing. I mean, I. Also sort of don't like the big blocker, small blocker uh, dynamic. I think it confuses what the actual fight was about, which is really governance. And I think it perpetuates this myth that the small blockers didn't increase the block size, which I think is pretty preposterous because you can see that with ordinals uh, today, that like the block size is larger. So you have this weird uh, mimetic phenomenon where it's like the small blockers, well, what did they achieve? It's like, well, they increased the block size. (laughs) So like, okay, (laughs) you actually had two... Uh, sides of them that like wanted to achieve kind of the same thing um, because you, they had to have they they had to have both wanted to achieve the same thing because in the end the claim of the small blockers is that they achieved that uh, what what the majority wanted um, so I don't know I also I really see the fork wars as like um, I think really what happened there was that there were you know, two groups that kind of like were formed they had the same goal they had different ideas on how to get there. Largely, this was kind of a conflict about governance and that, you know, the, I think the people who really triumphed during that era had pretty outside ideas. They had ideas that were kind of outside the mainstream. So I guess if I was to say, like, you know, why do I have a different view on this? It's that I think there's problems with polarization in communities. It's like really easy for like people to get stuck in us versus them divisions. And I think the people who are like most helpful in the fork wars, if I kind of look back, it's sort of you know, you have, you know, people like Marcia Popescu or Shallon Fry or, um, you know, I would say even like the people who kind of start the UASF movement, um, you know, uh, you know, they were pretty, they had particular like outside ideas. Um, maybe Thamos I would throw in there. They, there were people who had, they had particular ideas that were kind of outside the mainstream, but because they really believed in them strongly, uh, they were able to kind of push them like on to the populace, right? So like, let's just take USF, right? So like, let's say a, a group of people that was like, let's just say two or three people like created that, right? They created this idea, this idea that was like users controlled Bitcoin governance uh, and they essentially like, you know, put that idea to market and it won within the marketplace of ideas, right? Uh, but without those people, 
like being motivated or insightful enough to create that idea, would that have happened? Uh, I don't know. That's, that's where you get into like the really difficult questions because it was such a product of a small group of people. And that's why like one of my biggest worries is like, um, I think we need to support people who have outside ideas and like discussing things with them. Because I think the more you try to, I just see Bitcoin as like having a long history of people with like very obscure outsider ideas and viewpoints, like becoming very useful. I mean, another classic example would be Luke Jr.'s, you know, insight that Segwit could be a block size increase, right? Luke Jr. was somebody who was like traditionally not thought of as a core developer. He was traditionally kind of marginalized by that group. And it was only through his continued perseverance that like he was able to make that contribution. So I don't know. I, I just see the four cores as I think people try to look at it as like a triumph of polarization where it's like one side was right and the other side was wrong. And I think largely both sides were pretty, pretty ineffective and like caused a lot of problems. Uh, and in reality, like that was fixed by a few small, brilliant ideas that were allowed to like live and persevere through like immense conflict. So I don't know. Hope that's not too boring of an answer, but. No, that's that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think I think in the moment, I mean, I can tell you that I personally was radicalized by that. And it's taken me years to sort of, let's say, digest that energy, right? That kind of, you know, let's go to war, Sparta type of energy. Um, and but, uh, you know, looking at, at, at it today, and, I, you know, I mean, I think you're right. Yeah, the, the, the blog space was increased by 4x right that's the, uh, almost four four megabytes <laughs> i mean it's pretty if it wasn't obvious before it's certainly obvious now <laughs> so you know. yeah yeah and and it's and it's hilarious that the bsb uh uh let's say uh, maxis you know have invaded that space and are now building on top of bitcoin which is sort of it's a fascinating t question that we'll we'll get into a little bit but before we leave this sort of block space conversation um you know, one of the topics that are, I think, well enough understood now is that even though Lightning is something like a 30 or 50x scaling improvement in Bitcoin transactions, uh, for for people to continue to use Lightning in a, you know, non-custodial or a uh, maximally custodial way, like where the custody is at the edges and control of the users and not in a sort of, uh, you know, hub and spoke model as, 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 as it was critiqued, um, for, for that to continue, you know, we don't like there is a sort of limit to how many UTXOs there can be in the current uh, consensus in the current uh, way shape of the system. Um, how do you look at this problem? Like, is there is there other technological you know magic that can be implemented here? That I, I know that there's some proposals, or do at some point do we at some point have to increase the block size? Like. Do we at some point have to take advantage of some great crisis and just move that 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 bar up from one megabyte to I don't know I think ten has ten megabytes has been proposed eight megabytes has been proposed how do you how do you look at that issue? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a bit above my pay grade. I mean, I think that um, yeah, how would I answer that? I mean, I think that Lightning to kind of maybe move this conversation into what I was saying before. It's like Lightning was also kind of an outsider idea from people who weren't like the typical core Bitcoiners, right? So you look at who created Lightning, it was Taj Dreija, uh, you know, who's now with Lightspark and Joseph Poon, who was, you know, kind of chased out of the industry for various reasons. 
but you know, again, these were like not the regular core developers who were working on things, right? And so this idea of Lightning comes from again like a source where there are people who are not kind of part of the mainstream technical conversation. Uh, look, Lightning's great. I use it as I can send payments with it. It seems to work. You know, in terms of the larger philosophical stuff of like, you know, is it all we need? Do we need other things? I mean, I tend to be pretty supportive of just we need more ideas and more people thinking about things. I mean, but I don't know. I mean, at the same time today, it's like, you know, is there even really a use for Lightning uh, because the chain, uh, you know, uh, doesn't have a high fee volume to begin with? So, right, is there enough? Maybe we build something that ironically we don't really actually need or might never need right and certainly i think some people you know uh might claim that you're seeing a lot of people come out and kind of you know at least make the argument today that like bitcoin will persist in a low fee environment and may just always have low fees and be run somewhat altruistically by a group of miners um or users you know forever um I think those are interesting ideas. Um, That's kind of, for me, that's sort of my focus point in this um, tension is I think you really have a war between two ideas right now. You have a certain group of people who seem to think that the current way that Bitcoin is operating is the way that it will operate forever. We'll have low fees, uh, we'll have, you know, spikes at certain intervals, uh, but for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, Bitcoin will kind of persist as a you know, monetary asset, you know, people will hold it uh, for long term, but it won't, you know, maybe the economy won't progress to something like, uh, I don't know, like something that we've in our heads when we think about futuristic scenarios where there's millions and billions of transactions that that just won't occur, right? So I think there is a group of people who make that claim. I could probably cite specific examples, but maybe not useful. Uh, And there's another group of people who say, like, we need to increase the fee activity on Bitcoin to fill the blocks as quickly as possible, or Bitcoin will fail if it never does that. And so that's where I think you find at least the more ideologically kind of Bitcoin native, like, more ordinals people. um, And I think the people in the drive chains camp, right, they're certainly in, like, we need to maximize Bitcoin's fee space or block space. Uh, in order to, so they're both making a claim about the future of the Bitcoin network. Um, the problem I have with this is both their claims are somewhat unfalsifiable, um, you know, because I think the group that is saying that we never need fees to rise, they're saying that we can just sort of, you know, in the future, uh, you know, we'll just, people will run Bitcoin, you know, Pierre Richard, I think has a wonderful theory about, uh, you know, the cost of counter censorship is really Bitcoin security. It's not the miners, it's the ability of the user to, you know, pay enough to reverse the censorship. I don't think he's done enough to evangelize for that theory. Uh, I think it's become popular without really being well known, um, like what it actually claims to say. And if it's actually a well thought out theory, I don't think it's really been, I, I don't even think it really has been debated, to be honest. But like, there are certainly people, like influential people who think that. Uh, and then there's this other group that, you know, uh, they seem to think that Bitcoin will die without sufficient fee volumes to replace the subsidy. Uh, and the problem is, like, with both their claims, like, how do you make a factual, how would you how would you come to an educated <laughs> research-based decision on which is the right future for Bitcoin? Uh, you ultimately kind of have to sort of have some sort of belief, I guess, or feeling about it. And I think there's a bunch of people in the middle who just sort of assume Bitcoin fees will be high because Bitcoin will have a lot of use. Uh, so they're not really useful. They're kind of like a neutral middle party here. Uh, but there are two extreme views. And the problem with both extreme views is that I just don't see how they're, I don't see how you can 
Like I think Paul Storch, to the extent that you can try to use research to validate the claim that Bitcoin needs to have uh, to replace the block subsidy, it's kind of hard to argue that Paul hasn't done enough research on that already. He's written about that argument. He's presented it. Uh, and it's coherent. Um, but at the end of the day, I can't tell you whether it's true because uh, I don't know. And I don't I don't know if we can know. So that, I don't know. It puts us in a very awkward position in the present. So I don't know. Hopefully that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, drive chains and everything that he's trying to to promote is a whole other rabbit hole that I'm still kind of wrestling with. I'm not exactly sure how to how to navigate it. Um, I think to some degree, you know, we we have to have some. But you faith see what I'm saying about like the core thing yeah. being it's like they the, at the core they're both making like claims about the future. Yeah, and it's like the question then is like how do you actually choose as a rational Bitcoiner that wants the right thing for bitcoin it's like how do you actually know and so that's mm -hmm. what i've been trying to spend a lot of time thinking about it's like how how would you know that one of these things is true uh because none of us are going to be alive in 2140 <laughs> right so like how do we know what's going to happen then and then yeah. you have like two camps that are pretty dug in they like really believe that the other is wrong and so mm -hmm. you know what are we supposed to do about that well, there's a this is a very this is a classical problem, an old problem of prophecy, right? And you know, there's two prophets and two prophecies about the fate of the Bitcoin uh, nation, the Bitcoin civilization, or whatever, the Bitcoin people. And um, and and the, you know, it's funny. I, I met a a Jewish um, yeah a Jewish rabbi ages ago, and 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 I and we were talking about prophecy, and he said to me, you know how how you tell the difference between a prophet and a false prophet. I was no, I don't know. How do you how do how do the Jewish people know this? And he said, Well, um the Jew the, the the prophet that gets it right gets to continue being a prophet. And the prophet that gets it wrong, we cut their heads off. That's how we used to do it. You know? Okay. Well, practical. <laughs> so, you know, it may be that we don't know until we find out, you know, but well, but I think the core question is like, how would you, how would you know? Like, that's kind of the thing is like, you can't know if Bitcoin would fail in a low fee environment. I, I, this is what I think, like, I do push back on Paul's argument. And I, I appreciate how much he's done to advance his argument. Uh, but it's like, how do you actually prove that? And because you can't prove that, it's like both sides, like, I just, I don't see, they both of them really can't, like, uh, actually support their claim. The only thing that the... I think like low fee and eternity people have going for them is that like that's the current version of Bitcoin now and Bitcoin is currently working now. Uh, but then, you know, again, we know that that won't be the case. So I don't know. That's I spend a lot of time thinking about that right now. Yeah, that's a really interesting problem. Uh, and, you know, sometimes inaction is the best path. So maybe we just got to give it more time. Um well, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people making charts about prices going up for sure. There's a lot of things to do in the meantime. <laughs> right. So let's um let, let's let's get into this 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 question of, of BSV a little bit. Not because I want to talk about BSV, but because they've actually they're, they're in Bitcoin now. They're over there in Ordinal land, uh, building stuff, and uh, I guess bringing whatever they built on top of BSV that they've decided that is not worth it there because nobody cares about BSV except them. And and so a lot of them are have have. It, this is what I what I tweeted out that they've invaded they've invaded the Bitcoin space, you know, and started building in in Bitcoin land in in the ordinal niche, right? And uh, but and I can't tell, you know, is this a conquest or is this 
capitulation? Have they realized that having been on a different chain is pointless and that 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 BSV is you know centralized garbage or are they just here because it works does it doesn't matter like do, do you think that what they're building is i don't know is it useful is it something we should be concerned about i don't it doesn't seem like we can do much about it uh what, what are yeah, your thoughts on that whole uh, thing yeah so i'll go back to february uh, or late january time when ordinals came out and i think like most people i was a little bit skeptical you know i was probably a bit butthurt about the uh, nft craze uh, so I went into the forums of those things that were started. I said, okay, like, where is this community? What are they doing? I went down to the discords, uh, and just for like the first couple of weeks, I mean, this is when maybe there was like 10,000 inscriptions or whatever. <clears throat> I would just join new channels. Like anytime I saw a new project join, I would kind of like join that channel. And I just wanted to get an idea of like, okay, like how big, like how many people are doing this? And like, what are they doing? Uh, and by the end of that first week, I was probably in about 200 channels, uh, and the average number of participants in those channels were somewhere between 50 for like kind of the low end projects to probably like 10,000 for like the larger ones. And um, larger ones were kind of like you know Ethan Solana projects that had kind of migrated over to Bitcoin. So I said, okay, after the week of looking at it, uh, you know maybe there I saw like 10 to 20,000 people. Kind of different doing those different groups, like kind of like looking at these different projects. So. Um, yeah, so number one, I would say, like, I think the idea that, like, the BSV people are, like, a principal driver of ordinals is, like, a little bit of a red herring. Like, I don't think I've seen a ton of that. I mean, obviously, like, their primary contribution is the BRC20 token standard, which, I mean, I don't think needs, or I don't think warrants any defending. It's really just, like, a horrible standard that doesn't, you know, really add anything to Bitcoin, I don't think at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, is it an ideological conquest? I mean... It's hard to say. I mean, part of me thinks that, like, we play some sort of role in this. Like, I, I think the Ordinals was interesting because it broke people's per existing category groups. Uh, and so because of that, I think the question that you're asking is valid. So it's like, why did it do that? Like, why was Ordinals able to attract people who historically hadn't been interested in Bitcoin to Bitcoin? Well, I think on the ETH and Solana side, it was pretty obvious that it was just market differentiation for them. These were just existing projects. They have existing kind of like ETH and Solana NFTs, and then when it became possible to do it on Bitcoin, they just got involved because for them it was, you know, fairly low cost. They just took their existing art, they minted it on Bitcoin, they sold it. It was actually a pretty smart business decision for them. I don't know how much they understood about, like, the particular, like, technical specifics of ordinals, but, like, you know, the incentives were there to, for them to be early adopters, for them to kind of monetize their existing communities, and they did. Um, you know, whether we've made a lasting impression on them or want to make a lasting impression on them, I don't know. I think there's people with different ideas, but, you know, that's probably where they are today is that they've, some of them are diversified, some of them haven't. Um, some of them are probably waiting for Ethereum to come back. But, I mean, I think it was interesting that a lot of them moved, right? They uh, actually took an action uh, based on incentives and they... Got exposed to Bitcoin. Um, you know, I kind of appreciated the attempts that people made to educate those people about Bitcoin. I kind of wish there was more of that, but, you know, that's what happened. And then on the BSV side, yeah, I think those people, you know, probably saw an opportunity to, you know, uh, cause some controversy and did. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say what, where we've gotten with them or where you can get with them. I mean, they have their existing opinion. I've, the reason I kind of explain this as I did is because I think... If you think that all of the Ordinals activity is the BSV people, well, then what you're saying is that the BSV community is very large. And I just don't think that's, that's 
true. Like the BSV community is not large enough to like represent the activity that we saw in ordinals. Like, and it's just not representative of any of like any of the activity that like you would have seen if you were kind of in and around these projects uh, early on. Uh, they definitely came. I, I don't know if it was for good reasons. I don't know if we can or want to convert those people. I mean, I don't, they have, they have to know they're part of like a shrinking minority at this point. Um, but, you know, I think they're very clearly within the group of the people who want to maximize fee revenue and block space to scale Bitcoin. And then like, you know, how do you, how do you deal with them? I think uh, if I was going to try to convert opportunistically, like one of these groups, I would much prefer to convert and Solana people. Because to be honest, I don't think they give a fuck about like what blockchain they use. Like, I honestly don't think they have any real allegiance to Ethereum or Solana. These are just like random technology vehicles that they use to produce their products. Um, so I just find them to be very unideological, whereas the BSVers are like extremely ideological and they'll probably just go down that ship you know, regardless, we've just seen that like these blockchain communities, like, you know, use the XRP people are still, you know, doing XRP and the Stellar people are still around. Like these people, they just never go away, right? Like once you become like ideologically kind of ingrained in one of these communities, it's just very unlikely that you switch. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just see a lot of the East Solana people, they were just, uh, they were more agnostic. They were just here to make money and have fun. Uh, they just didn't care. Um, and I don't know. I don't know why you'd be mad at those people for that. I have a hard time with that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is maybe a capitulation of sorts or, you know, I, 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 the, the reason I ask this question is because I am somewhat torn by the, let's say, what, how to deal with or how to approach them. You know, what is our approach? And, and, and again, I am in the camp of the, the, the Bitcoiners that ended up taking the populist sort of small block banner and waving it and going to uh, mimetic war for Bitcoin in that front. And, you know, I guess I feel like we won and that's great, you know, but at the same time, I have that, that, that sort of defense mechanism now built in, you know, like if I feel like somebody is coming in and trying to change Bitcoin or influence it or, 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 or change it in a way that is potentially dangerous, then like my, you know, my, my defenses get activated. Right. And then I start basically talking smack about him on Twitter and so, but, but maybe, you know, it's usually in, in war, you know, the strategy that lets you, takes you to victory once doesn't necessarily take you to victory twice uh, because people adapt and integrate that and, and then come up with, you know, new ways to, you know, work around that strategy. So maybe, you know, and, and, and this whole, this whole ordinals thing, you know, with, with, again, Solana and a bunch of different, let's say, uh, uh, altcoin crypto people coming in and, and building on top of Bitcoin, it actually speaks to an older narrative, which was that, yes, you know, everything is going to be built on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is another layer of the Internet, is the financial layer of the Internet. And this is how it's going to play out. Everything is going to be built on top of Bitcoin. And that was kind of like, a, let's say, a narrative that was there before the fork war. Um, so from that perspective, I look at this as capitulation and as a kind of concession that yeah bitcoin is superior because they're building here we, they're not building and, over and there and i and i think the thing the truth is that is we will decide if that's the case because you have to uh yes the incentives cause that to happen uh but <sighs> um look i i think that there's a certain strain of like bitcoin these days where we've we've kind of lulled ourselves into thinking the bitcoin is a foregone conclusion that bitcoin will win 
And I think that that mindset just is really problematic. I, and, I, and I don't understand why we can't be opportunistic um, against our opponents. Um, so I'll give you like one example of this. And I know at, the, at the risk of saying anything like extremely satisfactory, I'll just, I'll just say this, right? So in war, uh, you know, you might want to be opportunistic. So like I just watched the movie Oppenheimer. Uh, you will see in that movie that the United States fought on the same side as the Soviet Union to defeat the Nazis. Uh, and that that was a conscious decision uh, made between two groups that, you know, maybe weren't ideologically aligned with each other. Um, I find that the current version of Bitcoin, we are really attached to certain ideological biases, uh, really just for our own, for the, nothing greater than the sake of our own tribalism at this point. Uh, I would say one thing that really confuses me is like our antagonism to Silicon Valley. I'm going to throw this out here because I think it's probably the dumbest thing in Bitcoin currently. Um, you have a group of people uh, within the world who control a great majority of the mindshare about where capital allocation for future technologies goes. And we have decided to make them sort of like an unspeakable enemy uh, and that can never be reasoned with or dealt with uh, and that we want nothing to do with uh, for some reason. I don't really quite understand. I mean, I, obviously, I understand. I, I understand that, that a lot of the ICO era was very unforgivable. And that they'll never apologize for these things, and that they'll never say sorry, and that they got rich for doing a lot of stuff that was very stupid. Uh, the question, I think, is like, well, um, do you want to win the war or do you want to punish these people? Like, what do you want to do? And can you do both? Uh, so, I don't know. I have a hard time with, like, this inability that the community has to be opportunistic, and I think we've found ourselves in some very... You know, if you look tactically at the board, just like very unfriendly positions, like, you know, okay, well, we're trying to increase the amount of Bitcoiners, but you can't talk to any of the shitcoiners. Uh, we can't have any meaningful interactions with them. Otherwise, you're a shitcoiner. Uh, so they're bad people, uh, even though they're already using, you know, stuff that's pretty similar to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, they're probably putting some money aside in this. Uh, most of us also owned multiple cryptocurrencies or at least interested in them but for some reason they're bad and we can't deal with them anymore uh but then we've got to get more bitcoiners or maybe we don't um i don't know i just find the average psychology right now to be very confusing to be honest i don't understand it <laughs> i think that um as i said earlier with like the eth solana people it's just like um what is so disagreeable about like the average cryptocurrency user who's simply just confused about things? Um, like, are they an evil or morally reprehensible person that we can't have any interaction with? Um, I just don't really understand how we're going to get anywhere. Um, but that's the group that I like to think, because I just think the BSV people, it's like, you can't, we're very obsessed with this idea of winning that we want to like embarrass these people. and like, I don't know, like have some retribution for like the wrong that they've done to us. Um, and I just don't see how this mentality is like very healthy. It's like a very, it's a very weak mentality because it, uh, you know, and this is, I mean, Svetsky's up here. I don't know if he's going to back me up because I've said a bunch of weird shit, but, uh, you know, in war, uh, you know, to win the war, you sometimes might have to do things that are, uh, you know, uh, in order, you know, make some sacrifices. So, you know, yeah. I don't know if we're going to punish these people. I don't know. I don't know where this grand punishment of the crypto people is going to happen. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what this is. What are What are we talking about? Well, that, that's, uh, it's fascinating, and 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 I and I want us to. I, I love the the way this conversation is taking shape because on the one hand we have Mike Moss, who's a VC that's probably very familiar with the Silicon Valley world, and then on the other hand we have Zvetsky, who's uh, let's say a, 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 an ideological 
um, almost an evangelist of a particular brand of Bitcoin. And I want to hear both of their takes on this because uh, I think, you know, I, I, I'm somewhere in the middle, you know, like I appreciate Silicon Valley for, let's say, their tenacity and effectiveness. And they definitely have the mind share. Uh, but on the other hand, you're right. There's a, a graveyard of scams that they that they have left behind their wake. And, you know, how do we deal with this? There has to be some retribution, some kind of, you know, uh, let's say, there I say justice. And maybe the SEC is the one that's going to deliver it, you know, because that's kind of what they're sort well, of you, doing. You hit the nail on the head. And that's why people care about the SEC. Because they want the SEC... <laughs> to uh they want moral justice uh anyway i'll, I'll, I'll hear what the other yeah yeah and then on the other hand i, I do agree that like the, the idea that bitcoin's gonna win and we should just have faith in this that that makes me uncomfortable i don't i'm not a particularly religious person i'm fascinated by theology but i'm not faith is something i struggle with and so like the idea that bitcoin is just gonna win um I, that makes me uncomfortable so um, first, I, I want to make Mike, Mike Moss, if you can uh, comment on this a little bit. What is your experience of Bitcoin in Silicon Valley or in the VC world? Is there anything there that you can contribute to this kind of question? You know, what is actually going on there? There's really not too much going on. I mean, I guess there's more going on now than there was before. Um, but there really isn't. I mean, they're largely ignoring Bitcoin companies. Svetsky can tell you. Uh, Svetsky's one of the few founders out there, I think, who actually loves fundraising. He's actually good at it, too. I don't know. Maybe it's because he's sick and twisted. I'm not exactly sure. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, there's a handful of people, right? Um, you know, Manny from Kingsway, you know, they have a ton of money. Uh, and they're just recently fairly newer to uh, investing in in Bitcoin and Bitcoin only uh, stuff. And and maybe sometimes something will get funded from, say, Kraken Ventures or one of those guys. But for the most part, it's still a cottage industry of people that are um, out there funding Bitcoin companies. And there's no shortage of them that are funding crypto companies, crypto scams, um, all these sort of things. And yeah, there's a lot of them that did not do well for them. Um, but if they had their scoreboard, there's probably a ton that did great. I mean, somebody probably made an absurd amount of money off of Filecoin, uh, or one of these type of nonsense projects where, you know, they just dump the token. And the last thing that I'll say versus um, investing in a crypto project or something that has token warrants uh, versus angel investing is we ultimately can't sell. Um, if I was a founder and I was raising money, uh, you know, an angel in investment from either an individual or um, a VC in the space, they are with you indefinitely. There is nothing they can do. And I don't think that I would want the type of VCs um, that are just going to dump the token. I mean, they're waiting for the day when they can sell and provide liquidity. You know, we, we actually can't. Yeah, but is, how, how different is this from like just knowing that your enemy has a playbook and that's their playbook? <clears throat> like if you know that's, a, that's what they want, then what, what's, what is actually the ideological issue there? What do you, you know, mean know what they want? They want? They want easy liquidity through tokens. That's what they want. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't really know how to answer that. 
So this this is reminding me of uh, a particular character. The I'm I'm forgetting his name, but he was basically the main guy behind EOS uh, and Block One and that whole scam. They raised like something like six billion dollars, and they uh, never like Dan thousand Bitcoin or something. It's crazy. I'm not talking about Dan Lermer. I mean, yes, Dan Lermer, but I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about another guy. He's kind of short. He's a Burning Man type, you know, very like. The smoke some ayahuasca or whatever, right? But anyway, this guy, I watched him give a presentation on exactly this, how you how the, the ICO technology, crypto technology broke, broke. So oh he 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 basically evangelized the ICO scam model, right? Where you would raise funds in pre, you know, pre-ICO and then do a bunch of marketing, and then you get the great benefit of exit liquidity on the other side, but you're also, you know, allegedly building a company and you know, the reality is that there's no, like, can you point to one company that used an ACO that actually survived the last few bear markers? I don't think it's, I can't think of one, right? So, I mean, that, that, that's definitely a mindset that, and a sort of model that, that infected Silicon Valley. Um, and I, I kind of blame him for it. He was the main sort of spearhead, ideological spearhead of that. But I mean, obviously, VCs want to make money, right? Like that's like that's the whole point, you know. It's you you need you know a lot of the, the, there's this is a capitalist game. Not everybody's going to be ideological. The idea that we can scale the the Bitcoin ideology to the world is silly. People have to people come here for the money, and they're going to stay for the money, and they're going to stay for better money. Um, Zvetsky, what do you think? I mean, I've said a few things about what I think you think, but I don't want to misrepresent you, and I'm sure you're I I got it wrong. So where where do you how do you see this? This question of, you know, how do, of let's say the, you know, dealing, being diplomatic and opportunistic in, in the advocacy of Bitcoin or its, or its growth. Damn, I, I missed a bit of that because I was doing, uh, I'm trying to finish the damn book here. Um, I, I kind of hopped in because I just, before I talk to that, I just wanted to thank Pete for his, um, his comments earlier about the, um, the anti-democratic nature of like, you know, the block size wars and how Bitcoin operates. Like it was because I think, yeah, the, all, all these narratives around like, oh, yeah, it was the people who won. Oh, man, most of these dumb motherfuckers have no idea that, you know, about Bitcoin, how it works and all that sort of stuff. You know, most most great things like, you know, there's this idea of the uh, the great man theory of history is like, you know, things happen because some, you know, to use like a Nietzschean idea is like that some vital human being, someone, someone, with a fucking out there idea um, plants the concept or the idea and, you know, basically manifests it like through, through sheer force of will or character or something of the sort. And, and that's usually what changes things. And, you know, I, I, I also bought into the, you know, the idea that I oh, yeah, somehow, you know, Bitcoin was different or something like that, but no, Bitcoin, you know, follows the same sort of model that everything else uh, that's, you know, every other monument or everything else significant uh, that's been built in history has also followed. Like, you know, you, you wouldn't have the cathedrals today that you have uh, throughout Italy had there not been a a benefactor class, you know, like the Medici's or something like that, that, um, you know, basically willed that into being. Um, and, and I think the same, same is here. And I think uh, Pete's point about... Basically, you know, Bitcoin being a thing where, you know, these sort of out there personalities, um, you know, the, these people that are, you know, against the grain, you know, where they sort of shine and flourish is, um, 
is an interesting thing. And I, I think that's as far from democratic uh, as possible. And I think that's, you know, what makes Bitcoin special in my mind. But anyway, I just wanted to echo that. Um, and then maybe I can put my two cents in about what you asked, which I already forgot what the hell you asked. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess we're talking about diplomacy, right? Like, do we... Do we defend Bitcoin on the ideological grounds, you know, and what it, what are we defending? What are those principles? Or or do we accept that, that you know, as a money that is a money for enemies, do we, you know, do, do we basically go to war against, let's say, the, I don't know, the BSV people or whatever crypto mm-hmm, people are mm-hmm. trying to build shitcoins on top of Bitcoin? Or do we, is there a different approach? Do we educate them do we evangelize do we do we go to them in diplomacy like the medici class like the 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 enlightenment era people invented the the diplomacy that ended the sort of a thousand years of feudal wars in europe and then created the great cathedrals of you know through the enlightenment era right like they'd invent like that that diplomacy to some degree we inherit from them right so how do we perhaps you know to some degree so how do how do we um I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? My answer is just yes, basically. Okay, great. So it sounds like we well, all agree. Let me, ask, let me ask a question in a more provocative <laughs> All right. Let's, let's just say that, like, uh, you know, the, 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 the U.S. and the Soviet Union went to war against the common enemy, right? And we would accept that the ideological differences between those two groups, you know, were pervasive and are still being fought today. So was that worth it to defeat Nazism? Like, is that, and, and in the context of Bitcoin, you know, there was an opportunity to do such a thing, to essentially partner, you know, with the enemy to defeat another enemy. Is that something as a culture that you think we are capable of doing or should do? Should do? Because the more that I look at it, I see that we're, we seem like we're not opportunistic with these other with these other groups, and that's why I brought up Silicon mm. Valley in that context. Maybe, maybe I I don't know if it's a good analogy because I think the partnering with the Soviets was the biggest mistake. Um, the Americans should have partnered with the Germans, um, but you know, let's let's not get too controversial here. Um, <laughs> we might get demonetized on Twitter on that. <laughs> no, but seriously, no like, com- communism. <laughs> Communism did way more fucking damage than um, than the Germans ever did. But um, anyway, I think that was the biggest mistake of the West uh, ever, 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 ever. But um, I think I think I, I get what you mean. I get the spirit of what you're saying. Um, coming back to what I said earlier about just yes, and what, what I mean by that is uh, p- part of part of this whole Bitcoin phenomenon is you got uh, some people taking advantage of that. Um, some people run around yelling, um, you know, making fucking memes and trolling people on the internet, you know, other people building shit. Um, I don't know. The, the whole mishmash of it is, is I think, where a lot, of, a lot of the value lies. And I don't think, you know, uh, we should do, you know, this or we should do that um, makes any sense because, you know, the, the, the good thing about um, – the thing about humanity is, you know, as it scales up, it naturally fractures up into sort of these tribal units. And, you know, you, you can't have, uh, you know, homogeneity across all these tribal units because people are fucking different. Um, people align, you know, around different values. For some people, you know, the, the sort of ideological, you know, component of Bitcoin uh, is, you know, where they find meaning in life. And by all means, let them, you know, I, I've been well a part of that community for a long time. Um, you know, a, a part of me still remains, you know, in that, a big part of me, um, because I, you know, I, I too find meaning in, 
you know, for me, I think like, you know, what Bitcoin ideologically represents is not like, oh, you know, power to the people or, you know, uh, you know, money for the little guy. But for me, what it represents ideologically, for example, is Bitcoin makes for better competition and makes it so that you win by being better, not by cheating. And, and I think there's a nobility in that. Um, but, you know, anyway, that, 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 is a, that is a draw card for me. You know, other people will be more uh, interested in the money-making aspect and that, you know, you were talking about the Solana and the, you know, those sorts of people. And, hey, yeah, let's, let's attract those guys. Um, you know, I, I, you know, look down on, you know, more materially oriented because I think, you know, by and large, a lot of them are just fucking nihilistic losers. Um, but Hey, you know, if they make me rich, um, happy days. Um, and if they, you know, make the ideological thing, uh, come to bear happy days, um, will I make fun of them and ridicule them? Sure. Um, you know, I enjoy doing that. Um, I like making fun of, you know, fucking losers. Um, and I'll do that forever. Um, because, you know, that's just, that's just me, but I think everyone should, you know, continue doing what they do, uh, in that sense. I don't think, um, you know, any, any, any particular way, uh, is the best. Um, and, you know, in, in the end, some sort of, you know, I guess narrative, uh, or movement, you know, prevails at a particular moment, um, and I don't know, it's just, it's just the way of things. So th th that's probably not a great answer, but um, yeah, I just think what we're doing seems to, seems to be working. Yeah. Rizzo, I, do you think that, do you think that Bitcoin is moving forward or what, what, uh, what from, what, what talent, what, what is it from Silicon Valley that, you know, we would benefit from, you know, because we we can't accept them bringing in ICO crap, right? Like we, 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 that's not tolerable. I think that's probably not negotiable. Like you can't come like you're, they're going to launch. There's probably some cryptos that may like, maybe, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely partial to NFTs, but like, you know, what, I think the VC model is well invented, you know, like the equity, equity is a very specific kind of financial vehicle that when regulated works you know and when unregulated it just creates a plethora of scams right so you know if 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 let's say a well-regulated vc um movement comes to bitcoin that that would be beneficial right like better more capital in bitcoin companies right but where what what can we what are we after from an opportunistic perspective there and maybe let's talk with Musk too about what, what can we do to bring in more capital into, into Bitcoin, to move, more VC investment capital into Bitcoin infrastructure. Um. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, some great thoughts there. Um, I guess I like to introduce something into this calculus, which is that, you know, uh, sometimes we act as if these questions, um, as if there's not people already doing certain things. Um, and this is one of, this was my, one of my big frustrations with the early sort of arguments around ordinals and NFTs, um, which is that irregardless of whether people are doing, uh, you know, arts or digital artifacts or NFTs on Bitcoin, people are doing that anyway. And they are, and I think that you have to actually start on that first factual ground. You have to you have to accept that they are actually doing that. Uh, because if you don't accept that it is true that they're doing that, 
uh, it gets very hard to say like, okay, well, would it be better if they were doing that in Bitcoin, either for them or for us? And if not, both. Um, and I think those are the interesting questions um, because I think as I evaluated what was happening kind of with, you know, the earlier parts of that movement, um, you know, I myself was thinking, okay, well, this activity is happening. I haven't participated. Maybe I don't agree with it, but it's, it's occurring. Now it's happening here. Is it better for them? Uh, the answer that I came to for myself was yes, uh, because at the end of the day, the people who are now buying these uh, probably worthless JPEGs uh, have real Bitcoin in their wallets. There are people who in the world have been exposed to Bitcoin. They will own Bitcoin. They're now Bitcoin owners. If all their bags go to zero, they have now acquired some of the greatest asset that human beings have ever uh, created, probably the only real money. So that, that seems obviously good for them. Uh, and is that good for Bitcoin generally, uh, which is like, does it um, bring more capital, people, excitement, development, attention uh, to our movement and like for the right reasons, right? Can those people, you know, sort of, you know, end up uh, kind of thinking the way we do and you know, what I think about that second part is that uh, most people did not come to Bitcoin with their current mindset. Uh, they were shaped by the rabbit hole and they understand, they came to understand Bitcoin over time. And I don't think that we're going to get any better at that. Um, as much as we like to think that we can explain Bitcoin to people, they don't seem, they seem to be pretty reluctant to take our explanations. So as I evaluated that calculus, I said, well, uh, that seems to be something where everybody seems to benefit from this, uh, yet entrenched ideological positions uh, made it somewhat untenable for me to even articulate that in public, for me to even kind of like utter that argument uh, is, would be grounds for me to be removed from public spaces. And I said, oh, geez, that's interesting. Um, do we currently have an ideology that, uh, you know, can be successful? Like, if that's the case, if we can't consider uh, making opportunistic changes uh, to our approach for adoption. This is like why one of my most recent critiques is that I think the problem with, you know, toxic maximalism is not that it's not well-reasoned. It's extremely well-reasoned. It was a great invention, but it was invented for a specific thing. It was invented to stop unwanted protocol changes uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, toxic maximalism was not an adoption strategy. It was never proposed as a way to get more people to use Bitcoin. And it is not that thing. And any any suggestion that it can become that thing uh, is to me totally logical. I don't I don't know how I don't know how I don't I don't know what the position would be that that uh, that can grow the pie for us. Um, and so this is why I think like the question that you asked about opportunism is sort of correct. It's like to what extent are we willing to make sacrifices to advance? the cause um and you know which are warranted and which aren't and then that's where i feel like you get into the interesting questions but i guess you have to accept the root question uh which is you know are we sort of you know are, are we where we are just ideologically kind of you know completely set on our ways or can we be opportunistic and can we do we have enemies and can we act against them in creative ways so i don't know i'll leave it at that yeah that's really interesting and i want to hear Mike's thoughts on this because you know Mike is a prime example of a VC that is not that is working in Bitcoin building in Bitcoin investing in Bitcoin and lightning infrastructure but not using these uh, ICO crypto token oh, scam vehicles Juan, right Juan I love you but I have a call right now and I got to bounce oh. but we'll pick it up again man I just wanted to say adios 
All right, Mike. It's 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 too bad to lose you, but would love to have you again anytime, man. Appreciate you coming on. So I'll take this in a different direction. I'll say, um, you know, there is ideological movements that are dominant. You know, again, we we call them religions, right? They're they're. I mean, I call them religions anyway. Like I think I think religions are ideological movements. Um, and they, if they take a certain shape and they build a certain, uh, you know, body of work and body of ideas, they do scale and they scale better probably than anything else. Right. You know, the, uh, Islam has like 3 billion people, 4 billion people, 3 billion, right. Uh, Catholicism, you know, has lasted about 2000 years, right. Judaism has lasted 5,000 years or more. Right, right, like there's, there's, how, there's how many billion people on the internet, like three to four billion, and there was never, a sure. number, there, was, there was never a required ideological component uh, to the internet. The thing is that, you know, look, uh, there was in the time before the internet uh, a United States where you know the ma- the mail was like a government institution, and there was a regulated like you know presidential appointee position of someone who regulated the mail. Uh, but at no point was the internet ever evangelized as sort of like a non-government postal service. That's not like that's not the mental framework that sort of advanced uh, the internet. So I mean, the question that I find is like, could you have made the same argument for the internet? Could you have described the internet in the same way as you could have described Bitcoin? And I feel like the answer is like yes, like because one of the primary benefits of the internet was that it removed uh, information transmission. From the existing, you know, uh, you know, transfer format, but also the regulatory format. And since Bitcoin does both of those things, you know, I understand that money is inherently more political. Uh, but it's like, do we have to only? Is that the only grounds that we're willing to stand uh, for it? Because I don't know. I just, I mean, if you look at the internet, that just wasn't uh, that wasn't what happened. So I don't know. We find ourselves in a odd position i feel like uh where you know if you look at the movement that like we most that the technology kind of most is most similar to we've taken a different tact um and that's just you know say what you will about that um you know when i look at the internet and kind of the movements that bitcoin most resembles today it looks more like something like the free software movement right where the free software movement under richard stallman uh, you know, it essentially said like, you know, you have to use free software and, you know, if you don't use free software, you know, you weren't allowed to sort of build, you know, with those software systems, right? It was very rigid in its sort of mentality um, and how it viewed the copyright framework and the existing legal framework and its attempt to exert force on that framework. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think we can learn from some of these things. I'm not, I'm not totally sure that that you know, if you look at the open source, free, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the open source, like free software schism, but, you know, I don't think today it's like, uh, are, are many people here using like only free software? You know, is that something that's like a primary concern to like most of the public? Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's def- it's probably not to most of the public. I certainly try to, uh, but I definitely don't in, in, in all aspects. Um, so I'll, I'll say this. Um, I think... I see a, let's say, a consolidation of, of uh, tribal um, extremes happening. I think, I think, I think. For on the one hand, I think maximalists are softening up a little bit because they understand that the war is behind us, you know, and that takes time. Um, maybe there's a future wars, but I think you know we have to be 
we have to be conscious and looking at the thing to know how to deal with it. We can't exactly use the past for the future. You know, it does, it rhymes, but it's not a mirror and it's not a carbon copy, right? I think that this is not, um, maybe let me, let me give you another kind of way to look at this. It's like, if we are so assured of our victory, then what is the conduct that we expect from the defeated? What do you expect from the people that our ideology subverts? And so this is why I talked about um, Silicon, the Silicon Valley question. How do we expect the people that surrender to us to behave? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, you're, if, if what you think will happen is that they will surrender graciously or easily or that they'll enjoy that process, like I don't, I don't really know what to say to you because that doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Um, so, you know, I think the attitude that we've taken is that we want to be, we want to deliver justice. <clears throat> the Bitcoin like ideology has become very focused on this idea that not only is Bitcoin moral, but like we are moral, we are implicitly moral because Bitcoin is moral. And therefore we are the actors of, of some sort of great moral justice. And I, I don't know what to say to people who really believe that because I, I think I have to say it out loud. I, I, you, you actually have to say it out loud to see how, you know, how, <laughs> I mean, look, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy claim. It's a, it's a crazy claim. Just because mm-hmm. Bitcoin is moral, does that make us moral actors? Does that mean we're required or bound by morality? I, I, have no, I don't know. That seems mm-hmm. outlandish to me. I don't know how you would make that argument. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the you know this is a good question. It's a question that we won't resolve fully in this conversation for sure. I think I think the one point you know bringing it back to the question of of like like how do we let's say um, work with the best in Silicon Valley, right? Is you know the the the, the one non non negotiable in that context is you can't be launching ICOs, camps like. You, you don't need a currency unit for a a company, right? If you have VC capital, you know, like the, the job of VCs is to take the risk and guide the company, right? And I think that's happening within the VC world as well. Like the, the, the all-in podcast guys who have the biggest VC media platform um, criticize their peers who launched a thousand shit coins uh, regularly. There is a kind of... Uh, let's say capitulation of this, the, the, a lot of the VCs that, you know, did a lot of these things that are obviously questionable and the SEC is kind of marching slowly towards them. And I can't help but root for them to go for the actual scams. And I hope they find the wisdom to do it and, and actually go for the actual scams. Unfortunately, it's very questionable the path they've taken, you know, and, 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 and I understand that it's, it's all very suspicious. You know, it seems to some degree that, that the SEC works for Wall Street and it's just some political turf war. But, you know, I, I, I don't think we can accept the, the ICO stuff, but I do think we need the, the talent and the capital. You know, we, would like, we don't need it, but we, it would be good for Bitcoin to have that capital and the talent that Silicon Valley has to come and build on Lightning, build on Bitcoin, and build out this sort of decentralized finance. And I think, you know, there's multiple ideological grounds on which we can advance that, you know, like if, if Silicon Valley is liberal 
there's very few things as liberal as Bitcoin. Bitcoin is radically liberal. Bitcoin doesn't care who you are, where you're from, what your name is, what your color is, what your gender is, what your, what your age is. Bitcoin really doesn't care. Bitcoin just cares that you have control over the private keys. That's what matters. And, and Silicon Valley and, and, and liberals in California should embrace that, should appreciate that if they really are liberals. If, if, they, are, if they are something else, then this won't work. But I think there's a lot of classical liberals, a lot of sort of le- liberal left people in, in like center left people in, in Silicon Valley that do still believe this and still value, let's say, this, this idea that is very American, that is very European of, of uh, you know, bottom-up societies, right? And that's what Bitcoin is, and that's what Bitcoin supports, and that's, I think, what we need to defend. But I do think we, we could be more, let's say, sophisticated and tactical and, and, and strategic in our, like, more diplomatic in our, in our work, because I, I, I agree with Rousseau. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the idea that, um, that Bitcoin just already won, it may be true, but what if it's wrong? What if it's false? What if, what if we are lulled into a false sense of confidence by this meme and are thus getting weaker as our, let's say, ideological enemies get stronger in, their, in, 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 that, you know, in that fog, right? So we, we, I, you know, I, think, I, think, I think Rizzo is right about to question that. And, um, you know, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Riso, welcome back. What uh, any any parting thoughts? Thank you so much for for joining us. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. No, cool man. Like, appreciate you letting me uh, kind of work on some of the things that I've been thinking about. Yeah, I think um, I don't know. I have a lot of questions lately about things in Bitcoin. Um, I don't know. I just. Uh, I think we're at an interesting juncture, as we said. I think we covered a lot of the big hits, but yeah, I don't know. I appreciate the ability to, to speak a bit freely. Uh, you know, I just, you know, it's a bear market. You know, we got to figure things out and chart a course forward. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't feel very convinced at the moment that we're you know, whatever. You know, we quite haven't figured out what the next bull market is going to look like. Um, you know, I think we need more conversation about that. So, here, here. Here, here.